Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And also in New York, I'm Dr. Ball. Man, oh, this is the Vine Pair podcast, but are we going to get rid of you? Are you going <laughs> to go back to Seattle ever? Like, it's now been three weeks. Yeah. I uh, think you've got, like, living, a house here. I'm living under the conference table. I'm going to kick Keith off the couch in another couple of weeks. I mean, I know why you're here. I know it's because you want to admit that New York is better than Seattle, and you're, like, really happy that you finally... Are here. I mean, the couch is comfortable. It looks like it. Keith manages. It's impressive. He manages to take up an entire couch for one person. He enjoys it, man. It's his space. Leave him alone. I know. I know the new office is 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 a work in progress here, but I think the uh, I I think you got to keep the couch for Keith. I don't. I don't think you can have a desk. Keith Keith will not get a couch. He will will not get a desk. He will get a couch. I was like, yeah. I I gave him that. Like, you know, oh yeah, you're gonna get your desk. You can just kind of give me this sad look. He's like, yeah. The couch is more comfortable. Well, you know, here's the deal. So let's get right into this one this week because I have someone to settle the score of whether or not uh, Seattle is better than New York or New York is better than Seattle. And that's Mark Farrell, uh, not Farrell, although I almost did it. He's <laughs> the founder of 10 to 1, an amazing rum. Um, but Mark, you have an amazing story, so welcome so much to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Great to, great to be here. Yeah, so I thought we'd, we'd jump into a conversation uh, about the rum, but bef- and rum in general. But before we get into that, help me settle this. So you worked at Starbucks. You are a vice president, right? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was a vice president at Starbucks for uh, just about three years. Is it is it true that I was told you were the youngest ever vice president? That's, uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know, how, that- far, I don't know how far the history books it- go back. <laughs> uh, I was the youngest during my time. Time there, yeah, you know? yeah, I yeah, dig yeah, that, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's better? What city's better? Uh, <laughs> do you want to sell any rum? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. For anybody who's listening and understand, I'm sitting in between these two gentlemen. I'm not going to try to tell them. I'll take the political card here. I'll say that they both are. They both have their strengths. Um, I'll say it's very much a case of to each their own. Um, I will say that I'm really happy to be back in New York. Um, you know, with the energy, with the entrepreneurial vibe, building building this brand. But my three years in Seattle, <laughs> my three years in Seattle were some remarkably formative years. They were really, amazing experience. Really rainy uh, years. Three really rainy years. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, picked, know, I got I picked up, on yesterday here in New York. So <laughs> it's possible, you know. I picked up yoga during my time in Seattle. That's been good Makes for my overall cool. well-being yeah. and holistic health. Like yeah. these things it's actually all matter. Good That's right. The cheese is important. Cool. So, so um, instead of ra- ra- you know, ragging on Seattle for the rest of the podcast, <laughs> the reason you're here is because um, like, your project is really interesting. So um, you're launching a rum brand in the United States when most people, I think, are instead launching still, still launching tequila brands, mm-hmm. whiskey brands, mm-hmm. vodka brands still, which don't really make sense to me as, you know, I don't think gin brands. That's so true. tell us about the brand. Tell us what you're doing. Um, and, and why you had this crazy idea to quit what I would assume is a pretty cushy job at Starbucks and launch a rum brand. Yeah, it's a great question, you know, um, and, and, and the thing is, that even before getting into the debate about New York versus Seattle, the story really begins in Trinidad, right, which is where I'm from. So born and raised in the Caribbean, uh, lived there until I was 16. Now I've spent the better part of 20 years living abroad between the U.S. and the U.K. Um, but Trinidad is still very much home, right? That's my passport. That's where my parents are, my extended family, etc. And, and, and really a lot of the inspiration for 10 to 1 as a brand came from this, 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 this desire to, to bridge the gap between the way that rum and rum culture are represented and articulated in the Caribbean versus the way that I have seen it brought to life uh, here in the U.S., yeah. So you so you felt that there was like a, a separation between basically companies because this is you're hitting on right what I want to talk about, mm-hmm. which is 
basically how corporations have sold rum compared to actually how it's consumed by the people who live there and make it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of at the heart of the matter, right? I mean, you know, um, uh, Zach Waxel, who's my, who's my close friend and business partner on this, you know, he came to visit me in Trinidad about five or six years ago, long before 10 to 1 existed. Spent a bunch of time with me and my family over New Year's, uh, my extended family, right? Because we, we rolled deep. And oh, we're, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're drinking rum, we're hanging out, you know, uh, celebrating the start of a new year. And he came away with a very different impression just based off of that trip alone, right? Like, you know... What was his... Did he tell you what his impression was before he came? His impression before he came, I think, is the impression that many consumers in the U.S. may have today, which is this idea of, you know, rum being limited to a very sort of narrow set of of, of occasions, a uh, limited set of venues. I always talk about... Uh, I, I, think, I think the expression of rum today being it's overly narrow, um, it's overly constrained. It's maybe a, even a little bit tropish, if you want to sort of like take it in that direction. Um, and it really is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a spirit that's very core to our essence in the Caribbean, right? It's at the heart of so much of what we do as a community, so much of, 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 of the way in which we kind of characterize this idea of celebration. That really is what rum is about on a very fundamental level. Um, it's also a, a, it also is a very elevated spirit, or can be a very elevated spirit, like, like, like many it runs the gamut from super cheap to super, super premium. Um, but even this idea that, you know, um, just kind of using it as a filler for slushy daiquiris or whatever right. you had that caused yeah, your yeah, terrible hangovers, right, yeah. your, your overly sweet drinks, your, your spring break nightmares that you have from 10 years <laughs> ago. There's so much more to the, to the category than that. So I wonder if, you know, you could maybe in a, in a, for a moment, because right now with 10 to 1, there you have both uh, like a light and a dark rum. Mm-hmm. And I think for people who are whose knowledge of rum sort of starts and ends maybe there, if it even if that's even what they understand. Can you explain really quickly kind of what the difference is between those categories and then maybe a little bit how, because one of the things I think that's interesting about what you're doing with 10 to 1 is these are not, these are blended rums. And so, and so how you kind of then, uh, both what the difference is between those two and what it means to blend rum yeah. in that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about it. You know, I'll start with the blend idea first. Um, Creating blend was, was, was non-negotiable for us. Um, you said you was, were like, we have to create We blend. have to create a blend. And, 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 and to me, it strikes at the heart of what we're talking about right now, which is this idea of um, telling a pan-Caribbean story. I actually didn't want to create a Trinidadian rum or a Jamaican rum or Bajan rum, you know, kind of you name it. And we talk about all the places that rum has, has come to be. But, but, but the idea of a more holistic view of the Caribbean was actually sort of at the heart of the brand from day one. So we kind of went out in search of, you know, different different rums, different distilleries, different flavor profiles that would all kind of combine in a way that reflected what the aspirations for the product were. Um, so, so building the blend is super important. As far as the dark rum and the, and the, and the white rum themselves, um, we, we position them a little bit differently. So for dark rum, lots of tremendous rum out there in, in, in the world. Um, and I'm the kind of guy, you know, I, I live in Noho, or I'm, I'm hanging out in Soho, Nolita. I walk into a bar, I see that, that delicious sipping rum um, on the shelf. And the, the challenge with that has often been that you see, you see the bottle collecting a bit of dust. It's kind yeah, of been relegated, always. always, right? And it's, always. It's, it's, it's been relegated to the back bar. Uh, it's, it's an occasional purchase. It's a sipping rum. With our dark rum, when we created a blend, we wanted something that you could absolutely consume on its own. Actually, it was at a birthday party last night, 20 people sitting at this table. Everyone is drinking 10 to 1 um, dark rum on the rocks. Which is, what, it wasn't your which birthday? Is, 
it was not my birthday. It's not my. You, it's the, you just brought. You I brought, the, I brought the rum. You know exactly, exactly. You know my my popularity is uh, is on the it's on the rise. <laughs> it turns out, yeah. You used to get free coffee now. You get now you get free rum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let the good times <laughs> let the good times begin. Um, but so you can drink that spirit on the rock, super easy. Um, the way we would consume it in Trinidad, a little bit of soda water, maybe a little bit of coconut water. So very foundational serves. So that's it. So you're saying that the traditional serve would just be coconut water or soda water and lime or no lime. Uh, optional, honestly, okay, optional. Cool. You know, I think very much to very much to preference. I think okay. like if you're, a, you know, a, a, a ultra premium rum, um, you'd see people, yeah, literally drinking it, um, an ice cube or two um, on the rocks, um, split down the middle between mixing with soda water um, or coconut water. You know, the occasional you'll see your occasional ginger ale, you'll see your occasional tonic. But I mean, really, sort of, um, um, it's a category that allows you quite a bit of creativity, even if you're just thinking about the foundational mixes cool. themselves. Okay, right. But but for our dark rum, just to kind of close the loop on that, yeah. for, for us, in addition to um, you know, kind of being able to navigate sort of like the neat rock soda tonic coconut water universe, we also wanted a rum that would be able to play in mixology and in craft. Right, so I don't want a rum that's relegated only to the back bar as a sipping rum. You understand, there's a craft revolution that's here to stay, and we wanted a flavor profile that would allow all the different partners we're working with, you know, bartenders, mixologists, beverage directors, to unleash their creativity and feel like our rum is a great partner for them in that vein. Okay, yeah. Um, so, and, and so, when you were thinking about that, who were you? I mean, I'm going to make you call out competitors, but who were you going after? Who were you saying like this is the person? Who are the rums that are being poured right now in, in mixology? Who aren't being poured right no, now? No, who, who is being poured? So, Or are there not? I mean, because I feel like I see tiki bars are on the rise, obviously. Yep. You know, we had a really fantastic podcast you should all check out mm-hmm. uh, a few months ago about tiki. But who who's providing that rum? Is it mostly Bacardi? Is it, you know, like... No, it depends on where you go. So, I mean, I think if you go to, if you, go to you know, a, a, a great rum spot. I mean, you talk about Tiki being on the rise. Yeah. You know, you go to the Polynesian, yeah. right, uptown. Those that's, guys... We had Brian Miller on. Yeah, Brian Miller. Okay, yeah. awesome. That's, that's, that's your guy. And you, you, if, you, if you see... That's our guy. If you see Brian Miller's um, selection behind the bar, it's incredible, right? And he has um, he has all the different Hamdans. He has all the different Valiers, the, the Dr. Birds... Um, you know, some of the traditionals like a, like a Smith and Cross. I mean, you really have the entire spectrum. So a guy like a Brian Miller is using a whole host of really great rums. Um, they may be agricole style. They may be pot still. Um, those have a different sort of more, uh, I would almost say a little bit more of an aggressive, uh, flavor profile on the palate. But, but the problem is, those rums that brands typically using aren't consumer facing. So, so, so you're saying names of brands that I think I've never heard of, and I guarantee you, that absolutely, most, almost every listener's podcast I've never absolutely. heard of those. Never brands. heard of them. Never heard of them. And, and, so, and so and so I just want to be super clear about something. You know, I have a tremendous amount of respect um, for the category. There are great rums out there. But you have to be you have to be beyond a rum scholar, a rum nerd, to really be able to list these brands because in a, in a sense they're almost relegated specifically to um, the craft that's behind the bar. I think the ambition of, a, of, of ten to one that's a bit different here is create something um, uh, of a high standard, create something superior that can play with the. Polynesians of the world or the, the courts of the world, the Four Seasons, the Aviaries, these are all places that, that, that we're actually sort of, uh, we've introduced the rum today, um, but can also build a consumer-facing brand system. Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. And in part of that, uh, in the idea of doing this blending to come back to that, because I think, you know, I remember from our conversation with Brian, you know, he talked about a lot how, um, in Tiki in particular, uh, you often have to build a cocktail with multiple different rums to yeah. get a more balanced flavor profile. And and so 
I, I do kind of want to kind of come back to this question about the the dark rum and the light rum yeah. and and sort of not just understand the sort of um, intentionality behind the profile, mm-hmm. but, but how would you describe it to, to listeners who might be interested either as consumers of buying this or people who work in the industry who are interested in this product? Like, what is the flavor profile as you see it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great question. And you're, you're right. I mean, uh, um, the guys at, at Polynesian, the guys at Patent Pending, um, I imagine the guys at Blacktail, uh, Dead Rabbit, are all, are all creating their own pivots on these rums by mixing a number of them together, right? So that, 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 is, that is for sure a movement. I think when we thought about how to create these blends, th- there was this spiritual element, this idea of telling a story that's pan-Caribbean. But let me talk about the product, which is what you're asking about. Um, if I describe the dark rum, the dark rum is a blend of rums from Dominican Republic, Barbados, Trinidad, and Jamaica. Um, what's unique about the Jamaican rum in there is that it's a pot still rum, whereas all the others are column still rums. Um, it's 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 a, it's the the vast 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 majority of the blend is is eight year aged, um, ex bourbon, um, uh, so, so white oak casks. So aged in bourbon, ex bourbon, ex bourbon, ex bourbon exactly. Um, but there's a little bit of younger unaged uh, Jamaican rum that's a part of the a part of the blend, um, and that was that was very deliberate from a product perspective. I, I think I think what that has done to the profile of the rum, both on the nose. Um, which, which, which gives it a little bit, it's a higher ester rum. Uh, you get a little bit of the overripe fruit. It's actually a very inviting smell if you just take the cap off, the top off the bottle, right? Um, but also what it does on the palate. That, that little bit of versatility in the blend is what I think has made folks excited to put this to work uh, mm-hmm. in mixology versus, for example, um, a strictly kind of barrel-aged, maybe a, so almost like slightly oakier, uh, one-note, one-profile rum that doesn't feel like it has enough intrigue for these guys to want to adopt it in mixology. So to, 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 be, to make you be even more basic, mm-hmm. what is dark rum? What is the dip? Like, what is dark? So, just for what is dark rum? What is light rum? Yeah, sure. So, so dark rum is is rum. So, so when rum comes off uh, of the still, the rum is clear. So, the rum is white rum, uh, right? If, if you want to begin there. So, the, almost in the way that you would talk about whiskey being that's what do we say, white lightning, or white dark. That's or right. Exactly. Absolutely, absolutely. That's, right. That's, okay. Um, so, dark rum is a function of barrel aging yep. on the most fundamental level, right? Um, well, you also don't you have an issue with some of the inexpensive dark rums where there's caramel added? Absolutely, and, like and, and and this is now when you've been and we could have a whole other conversation about like <laughs> some of the some of the issues that I think have really sort of um, uh, um, stunted the growth and the maturation of the category. But this whole idea of adding sugar, um, coloring, different flavorings, whether it's like a vanilla extract or other things to the to the rum, versus leaving it unadulterated and having the rum stand out for itself, create this color. So 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 yes, now you have a whole category of rums that are unaged but appear dark in color because of what's been added to them, yeah. versus the idea of truly being truly being barrel aged. Mm-hmm. Right? Interesting. Yeah. And so for you whereas then the white rum that you're working that you're producing is just a, essentially an unaged yeah. Product. And so, what? So, what is then? If the if the idea behind the dark rum is to you know balance sort of that barrel aged flavor with a little bit of, of sort of younger mm-hmm. rum, and maybe to, to sort of have that be a part of one one way of consuming in one uh, set of cocktails mm-hmm. with, with with the white rum. How is that traditionally consumed in the Caribbean, and how do you see that? product playing into the market here? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and if I almost think about the challenge with white rum versus dark rum, in one way they're almost opposites. In that with dark rum, um, you could point a whole fragmented slew 
of different rums, all of, all of which have a little bit of market share, a little bit of market share, but like, what's the dominant single dark rum that everyone would name? Well, a little bit unclear. I think on the, on the white rum side, you know, there's kind of, there's kind of one bottle that yeah. kind of comes to mind that's ubiquitously tied to the category, right? Yeah, it has um, a bat on it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That's right. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, I, and I make no judgments about who has or ha- doesn't have it, but I'm saying there is kind of a, a, a very dominant... They're the only one. Right? Um, or the perception is that's the case. So with the white one that we created, the challenge is a little bit different. We wanted to kind of um, challenge the consumer's idea of what a white rum can and should be. Um, and the way that we did that is, first of all, um, again, it's a blend. Um, so Dominican and Jamaican rums living as part of as part of the story for ten to one white, um, a mix of column and pot still rums also, um, which we thought had value. Again, uh, I would say with the white rum, uh, when you open that bottle, and everyone has the same reaction, um, their eyes open and a smile just kind of emerges on their face. It actually has a super pleasant nose when you first uncork it. Um, um, we played with the proofing. So it's actually, it's actually an extra proof rum. It's 90 proof instead of the standard 80. Wow, okay. um, in the product development, the feedback we got from a lot of mixologists was that um, typically white rums struggle to stand up in cocktails on their own. You kind of just add them for the sauce. You don't yeah. add them for, any, for, for any, any real dynamism. And so kind of playing with the proofing, it's actually incredible what, you know, five, ten points of proofing can do to add in some structure on somebody um, when, you're, when, you're, when you're building, when you're crafting a cocktail. And so ultimately kind of landing on the 90 proof, um, landing on the mix of column and pot, thinking about it as a blend, I think has allowed us to do some really incredible things with the, with the bottle that we have um, that I'm optimistic will make consumers, uh, will make consumers super excited, super Amazing. enthusiastic. So um, let's, let's get a little bit more, let's get heavier. Let's get heavy. All right. So what you're doing is really cool. Um, I think the name, which I'd, hopefully you'll be able to explain probably in the answer to this question, mm-hmm. uh, rum has a, a troubled history, yeah. right? It yeah. has a lot of, it has history with colonialism. Yeah. Um, slavery, slavery. Right. So, uh, wh- how do you approach that? Yeah. What are you thinking about? And you know, I think, do you think as an alcohol producer, those are things that you pro- that you need to address, or you don't need to address? Right? We're in a, it's a point in society where we are talking about these things, and yeah. I think there's a lot of these yeah. larger brands that have, are ignoring it. Yeah. So, I'm just I'm yeah. really curious from your perspective as a young brand. You know, you know, as a as, as a young brand, but also as a as a young man who is from the Caribbean, who's from Trinidad, the answer to that question is you absolutely have to address it. Um, I, I, I would think of it as something that almost like it's a, it's a weight you carry on your shoulders as you bring a brand like this to life. Um, now, the way that you go about doing that is important. And I think you don't address it from the perspective of negativity, right? Let me, let me sit down here and talk about all the bad things, all the negatives that are in the past of, of rum, of the Caribbean, of rum and the Caribbean together. Um, one lesson I actually learned at Starbucks was... Um, and Howard was incredible at this, but, but it's so much easier to say what something is not than to say what it is. So I could point to my brand and say, oh, my brand is the antithesis of all of that slavery narrative and all these tropes and all this negative history. I, I, I could point to that very easily. But does that move the conversation forward? I'm not sure that it does. I think you have to figure out sort of how you're actually going to fill that space and declare what the brand is. And so for us, the way that we went about doing that is, 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 by, is by deciding to tell a much more uh, contemporary story around Caribbean heritage and culture. Um, I want to say what the brand is. You, you asked about where the name 10 to 1 came from, right? That, that's actually a perfect example of it. Um, people look at the bottle 
and, and, and you guys obviously are listening, so you can't see it right now, but look it up online. Yeah, uh, you have yeah. the internet. You have the internet. 10to1rum.com, go find it. But you look at that bottle and people say, wow, this looks super modern, super uh, contemporary. It doesn't, doesn't remind me of a rum bottle, whatever that means. And I actually will always point out to them that there's so much history and heritage that's actually packed into the design. Um, starting with the name. The name 10to1 is actually inspired by the original Caribbean Federation, um, which consisted of 10 countries. Uh, as, as Trinidad's Prime Minister, Dr. Eric Williams, said at the time, uh, one from ten equals zero. It's the idea that if you remove one from the collective, the entire thing falls apart. So as a brand, we're grounded in this, in this idea of solidarity, strength in numbers, beauty in the blend, as, as, as we like to say. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a separate little wink and a nod to Trinidad there because TTO, 10 to 1, is, 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 the, is the Trinidad and Tobago country code. So I, gotta, I always got to give a little bit of extra love to my home country, you know? But that's a, that's a cool little wink and a nod to impress your friends when you show them the bottle. But um, um, whether, it's, whether it's the name, um, whether it's the color scheme of the bottle, which actually is also inspired by the Trinidad national flag, whether it's the way that we took these old shipping labels, if you talk about sort of vestiges of, of post-colonial you know, slave trade and sugarcane trade and all these things, we actually took that, that old ship shipping label and repurposed it uh, on the side of the, of the bottle to tell the story of the bottle and the blend and the brand. Um, uh, the, 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 the logo mark is actually the Scarlet Ibis, the National Bird of Trinidad. We, we, we stylized it and used it for that purpose. So, so I can show you three, four, five different elements of this design as, as modern and as contemporary as it, as it looks, right? All of which actually reflect this idea of modern contemporary Caribbean culture. Yeah? So I wonder too, you know, you're talking about this and, and I think it's really interesting for people who are a little more knowledgeable about rum than maybe just knowing light and dark and understand some of the different, uh, you know, the way that rum has sometimes been classified in the Caribbean yep. as being French, Spanish, yep. or English. Yep. You know, and you're obviously with, certainly with the dark rum, you're working with countries who are traditionally associated with different distilling mm -hmm. uh, traditions and mm -hmm. styles of rum. Mm -hmm. <sighs> Is that something that you see, because I, I just find this fascinating in the current rum com conversation, do you yeah. see those distinctions being meaningful anymore? Because a lot of the rum professionals I talk to, which are, granted, not a lot of them, but a few of them out there, <laughs> yeah. do seem to feel like that is a sort of a vestige of a different era, that there's, there's, there's less, you know, tying the, the current distilling culture and rum culture to mm -hmm. a colonial power from, mm -hmm. you know, 100, 200 years ago mm -hmm. doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Um... I don't know that I agree with that entirely. Okay. Um, I, I, I think there's opportunity to do it selectively, right? I, I, I totally hear and I see their point. But, but um, if you go to Barbados and Jamaica, right? Um, Barbados and Jamaica both um, still do, um, pot, they create pot still runs, right? The pot distillation method. And what they would tell you is, um, we, we, are, we, are the, we are the home of rum. Um, because anyone who came to the game once the technology had advanced, pot, pot distillation was the original method. Yeah. And when you, once you moved to column, if you picked up rum in the mid-1800s, you did column distillation. So you can almost pick out the early participants in the game by the fact that they still have the old pot stills running somewhere. And of course, the equipment has advanced, but, <laughs> but, but you, know, you have the pot versus column distinction, which I think is one major one. The other major, I think, um, distinction in, in, in the rum game is the idea of molasses-based versus uh, agricole style. So right? can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So agricole, so agricole is typically associated with 
um, French, uh, French-speaking Caribbean. Okay. Right? And uh, the molasses-based uh, style is associated with the English and Spanish-speaking Caribbean. And what is agricole? So agricole is, um, the, the rum is made from sugarcane juice. Juice. So you take the sugarcane stalk, right? You, you, you cut it, you, you, you press it, you squeeze it, and from that you get the extract, which is the juice. Like literally cane juice. Cane juice is your input into agricole-style rum. Right, um, and, and you, the way you might see that manifest is that a lot of agricultural style rums literally taste a little more, a little more grassy, a little more herbaceous. They kind of pull some of the the terroir, right, from which they from which they come. They kind of pull it all the way through into into the final product. It's also why, therefore, you end up with a lot of agricultural rums that are that are white rums, right? You kind of distill them, you pull them through, and that's the rum. It's in, in a and lot of itself. flavor right? Right there. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and you're not wanting to cover it up necessarily with oak. Uh, absolutely, right? So, and, and by the way, I, I, again, uh, to listeners, exceptions to every rule, but I'm just kind of speaking in no, general. Right? This is good. Um, molasses-based rums, right? So, so, so here's, here's how you start in the English-speaking Caribbean. In Jamaica, let's say there were, let's say in 1950, there were probably, I don't know, 25, 30, I might be getting this number wrong, but, but 30 plus sugarcane factories on the island. Rum in that setting was actually a byproduct of the sugarcane, uh, sorry, sorry, of the, of the, of the sugar, granulated sugar manufacturing process. So you have this cane juice, right? You're, you're boiling it off um, to get your sort of pure white crystals of granulated sugar. As you're separating the liquid as it boils off, what comes off on the, the first, the second, the third boil over time ultimately is this sort of darker syrupy concentrate, and that is molasses. Right, so the molasses is the byproduct of that process, and the molasses is then used as the input for um, the, the primary input for creating rum in the English and Spanish-speaking Caribbean. Ah, that's, that's 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 the fundamental difference between the two between the two styles. Very interesting. So for you, I mean, you're making a blend. Um, how important is it to you? It may be very important, may not be important, but I, I've heard this come up a lot with other producers who are making. Tequilas and mezcals in Mexico, but you know, to highlight the people who are distilling or who are helping put in, or is that sort of a guarded secret for you because you don't want people to know where you're getting the, your rums to make your blends in the first place? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, um, I'm new to the. I mean, I'm, I'm 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 I've been in the rum game for a long time as a consumer and as a fan of the space. I'm new to the game as a as a as an owner or the founder of a brand. Um, as I understand it, another thing that has kind of plagued the category for a long time is this sort of uh, faux secrecy. People don't want to discuss how they created it, where they created it, how long it's aged, whether the number on the bottle is actually tied to the age of the rum. And there are all these things that lead to um, uh, this inconsistency in the category. Going back to what we were discussing earlier, I actually think that like there's so much beauty in the different, whether it's agricultural, molasses, pot, column, Trinidad, Barbados, Jamaica, etc. There's actually beauty in that if you can actually pull back the curtain and, and, and begin to allow the consumer to understand and celebrate that fact. When you hide all these things and pull the wool over people's eyes, it becomes a problem for you as a category and it adds no benefit to the consumer. Um, all that to say, we've taken a very proactive approach okay. to kind of, as I said, you know, at, at the start of our conversation, I told you sort of... Um, what the countries are, um, what the stills are, 
what the aging is of the rums in our blends. Now, if you ask me to tell you, um, it's, 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 it's 32% of this and 29% of that, that's probably a little foolish, right? <laughs> so, you know, we have, to, we have to access a little bit of pragmatism, but, but I think, honestly, anything short of that, we've actually been very, very proactive to, to share with folks, you know? Um, again, because we're starting from a very positive place, which is coming at this um, with, with humility, with a, with a sense of respect for the category, and wanting to celebrate all these different con- contributions that the different countries, the different uh, distilleries have all kind of made to the category today. So I have one last question for you, Mark. For people who are not necessarily big rum drinkers, and for whom rum as a spirit is something they maybe almost never drink, or they only drink it in very kind of... Uh, in just a few possible applications, yeah. what are what are a couple of drinks that are maybe you know I'm sure there are some at some of the bars that you guys have partnered mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some beautiful concoctions that are proprietary mm-hmm. or their own best, uh, uh, recipes. But as far as drinks that people might be able to uh, play around with at home or, or ways to drink it, um, you know, you mentioned with just soda water or coconut water is, in case of the dark rum. Are there any other sort of ways that you recommend for people who maybe aren't quite ready to go straight sipping rum? But want a chance to sort of see these these spirits in a context that shows them off and isn't the same old way that people have experienced rum. Yeah, I think I, mean, um, absolutely. You know, um, f- f- just to kind of reiterate, I think that like um, your bar would feel if you have some rum on, on your bar at home with those baseline mixers, soda, tonic, and or coconut water. You can already do a ton right there, right? Um, Never thought of the idea of coconut water. I'm listen, really into it. Yeah, I'm yeah, really yeah. into the coconut I'm gonna water. Come, I'm going to come back to hang out with you guys. I'm going to bring our white rum. We mix it with some coconut water. I promise it'll, 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 it'll blow your mind. It's actually pretty incredible. We've been getting a lot of great responses on that. But, 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 but so you have um, those baseline mixers. Um, what I would say from a cocktail perspective, you know, you walk into any, any, any uh, premier sort of craft mixology spot, and they always tell you, like, the daiquiri, Right, which is the simplest cocktail in terms of ingredients, is actually the one that they often use to interview uh, uh, folks who are looking for jars behind the bar, right? Because because sort of finding that balance of like the the citrus with the rum and the sweetness and all that stuff. Can you make a, a perfect daiquiri? What I would say to our listeners out there is the daiquiri is not what you think it is. Right, it is, it is not. not that thing in the slushy machine from Senor Frogs in Cancun or, you know, Montego Bay in Jamaica. It's not that. So if you take one thing from this conversation, I beg you, go to your nearest bar, um, um, find me, maybe I'll come buy you a drink, but but but, but order a daiquiri as it's meant to be crafted. And you can do it at home as well. Yeah, we have um, a recipe on Vine Pear. Absolutely, absolutely. So find the recipe on Vine Pear, really easy execution, and use that along with the, the soda, tonic, coconut water to create all the different forays into the category that you want. I promise, I promise you won't be disappointed. So, last question on my end, and then we'll, we'll let you go. This has been really, really interesting. So, I, I know your answer could be yes, because you want, you want this, but I've had a, we've had a lot of debates in the office when we think about trends, and mm-hmm. is, does rum, will rum become the next bourbon? It seems like, to me, it has a lot of the, the same flavor profiles that it could be, mm-hmm. right? Like, you have people who are sort of searching for these sippable yeah. libations that have been aged in oak that, you know, are good on the rocks, good neat. But it hasn't. Right. So do you think it will? And why hasn't it yet? Um, do I think it will? Yeah, I think it will. Because if it won't, then, you know, we've got the next podcast talking about gin, you know? I'll see you back. I'll see you back yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll, be back, I'll be back in Seattle. I hope they'll take me back. So, um, no, I, 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 I hope it will, and I really believe that it can. Uh, but, but, but the thing is, here's my problem with, with when people declare, like, rum is the next thing. Um, you have to go make it so. 
So, so, so you can't sit back as a brand and say, oh yeah, I'm just going to sit here and wait for consumers to decide that they love rum and rum is up next. That to me is a bit of a false dawn. Um, what someone like myself is out there doing is day after day, bar after bar, event after event, you've got to educate people. You've got you, you, you to gotta, you gotta cultivate the passion in them. You've got to educate them, right? And it's hard to do that sitting in a warm, cozy chair thousands of miles away and expect the result to somehow be different. Um, so I, I hope and expect the 10 to 1 as a brand is kind of leading the charge in a lot of, a lot of that education. But by the way, some of those perceptions are very fundamental, right? People think um, that rum is super sweet. Um, it's made from sugar cane, it's high calorie, it's all these things. Our rum, just to be super clear, it has no added sugar, no added color, no added flavorings. None of those things, right? That are actually a lot of other rums in the category I've had historically. But you've got to go out there and make people appreciate that. Um, it's one of the things that people point to very frequently when they talk about why they drink tequila uh, and not uh, maybe a rum or a right. bourbon for that matter. They drink something that um, says it's better for them. They won't get a hangover. Totally. That. Yeah. totally. When you say age versus unage, what do you mean? When you talk about molasses versus agricole, what are you referring to? That category, education and enthusiasm, has to come from somewhere. It isn't going to just materialize. I completely agree. I think um, we have that conversation a lot here that there's a lot of decla- declarations of trends that you know, maybe declared by the bartenders or mixologists who then aren't educating the consumer, but because they're all excited about it, they think it's the next trend, or ourselves as writers, it has to come from everyone really educating the consumer and ultimately getting the consumer to go to their local, you know, wine store, mm-hmm. liquor store, et cetera, and buy the bottle and put it on their home bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, then, not, and then actually yeah. drink it, not just yeah. drink it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. The last and most important step. Yeah, exactly. Drink, drink it. it. Yeah, Mark, right. thank you so much for joining us. This Great time with uh, you guys, this man. This was really, really awesome. It was awesome. Super fun. Um, and everyone, thank you for listening. We'll see you right back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, We'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.